This book has been called the book of signs. There are 35 miracles in the Gospel of John, excuse me, in the New Testament. Seven of those are contained in the Gospel of John. John doesn't attempt to tell us each and every miracle, but he's going to point to each and every miracle to represent something. Many of you know that this is the first sign in the Gospel of John, and it's water into wine. Now, in the hierarchy of miracles, you may put water into wine really low on the list. But I think that there's a reason why John puts this miracle, this sign first. Over two centuries ago, a young man named James Christie opened his sales room or auction house in London. It was the winter of 1766 and a deceased nobleman's estate was offered for sale. And according to one flyer, it said a large quantity of Madeira and high flavored claret. The total sales fetched 175 pounds sterling. Over 200 years later, Christie's Auction House sold one bottle of wine for 105,000 pounds sterling, or about $160,000. That bottle of wine was a 1787 Chateau Lafitte Bordeaux. And according to the Guinness Book of World Records, it remains the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. But there was something about this bottle that made it really unique. Etched on the bottle that increased its premium price were the initials T and J. The bottle was purchased by Thomas Jefferson when he was ambassador to France. And he would spend a considerable time visiting the vineyards of Bordeaux and Burgundy and buying wine for his collection and for his friends back home. By the way, Thomas Jefferson's cellar yielded two other very pricey bottles of wine, a 1775 sherry, which sold for 43500 and the most expensive white wine ever sold at auction, a 1787 Chateau de Quim for $56,588. By the way, none of those wine will ever be drunk. It will never be consumed because you see a Bordeaux only lasts about 50 years. And so 200 years is well past the expiration date of any wine, except for one kind of wine, the one we're going to talk about in a moment. By the way, the world's most expensive wine that can be consumed sold in America was a Montrachet, which uh, from 1978, from the Domaine de la Romanie Conti, it was hammered down at Sotheby's in New York in 2001. It was a lot of seven bottles. It fetched $167,500. That comes to $23,929 a bottle. You thought it was expensive at Macaroni Grill. In John's Gospel, we discover... The world's best wine was not made in the vineyards of France or served in the finest restaurants in the world, but it was served at a wedding. And it was an unpretentious wedding. 
in Cana of Galilee almost 2,000 years ago. And the wine today is valued not for its rarity, but for what it reveals about the maker, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this story is meant to tell you something about Jesus. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's also meant to tell you something about yourself. Remember, the purpose of John's gospel is to provide proof that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. And there's another message of how the Lord can provide hope and joy and triumph in life's sudden disappointments. I think it's significant that the public ministry of Jesus begins with a wedding in chapter 2. It ends with a funeral in chapter 11. Do you know what weddings and funerals have in common? Nobody remembers what the preacher says. When you go to a wedding and when you go to a funeral, you think about the person who's being married. And you think about the person who's being buried. The first... A wedding is connected with life's most joyous or gladdest hour. And the second is life's saddest hour. The first miracle of Moses, remember earlier in the text, it says that the law came by Moses. The law was given by Moses. He turned water into blood. The first miracle of Jesus, grace and truth, came by Jesus Christ. He turns water into wine. The miracle of Moses was a miracle of judgment. The miracle of Jesus was a miracle of joy. Let's look at the ceremony. Look at verse 1 again. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Before we look at the ceremony... Let me remind you of just a couple of quick things about the chronology and the geography of John's gospel and Jesus's ministry. The verse begins, read it for yourself, on the third day. You should ask the question on what, which third day? The third day of what? If we trace John's narrative from chapter one, the chronology begins with the first day, John chapter one, verse 19, the second day of Jesus's ministry, John chapter one, verse 29, the third day, John chapter one, verse 35, the fourth day, John chapter one, verse 43. And so therefore, the third day in chapter two, verse one is the third day after both Philip and Nathaniel embrace Jesus and become disciples of Jesus. They begin to follow Jesus in verses 43 through 51. And so the teaching and preaching schedule of Jesus takes place in Bethany in in chapter one, verse 28, in the Galilee in chapter one, verse 43. And now Jesus, with his disciples, find themselves in Cana of Galilee in chapter two, verse one. We need to understand a little bit about first century Jewish wedding customs and traditions. In the culture of a Jewish wedding, theirs was an arranged marriage. I kind of think that we should bring that back. I suspect that moms and dads know what's best. And I'm more convinced of that than ever. However, in the first century of the Jewish wedding tradition... 
the couples or the families would make an arrangement. There was a period, a legal period called the time of betrothal. And like I said, it usually lasted up to a year. The betrothal could only be broken because it was a legal contract by a bill of divorcement. By the way, the wedding took place on the third day. Here's something a little bit interesting. The third day of the week, of course, in the Jewish calendar is not Wednesday, but Tuesday. Remember, day one is Sunday. Day two is Monday. Day three is Wednesday. And by the way, Tuesday on the Jewish calendar is still the preferred day for weddings in Israel. This is because on the original third day. You'll remember that when God created the heavens and the earth, you'll remember that there was a series of creation events that began to take place on day one, day two and day three. On day one, the Bible says the Lord saw that it was good. On the second day, the Lord saw that it was good. On the third day, the Lord saw that it was good is repeated twice. So in the Jewish culture and society, the third day was known as the day of double blessing. And because it was the day of double blessing, for many, it became the best day of the week to begin a new and an exciting life. So a virgin had her wedding on the third day. But if you were a widow, if you'd experienced a divorce... If yours was a painful circumstance, your wedding would be the next day. And by the way, the wedding feast would last up to seven days. As a matter of fact, the wedding took place on a Tuesday and again on a Wednesday. But at the end of the day, the groom, along with the friends and, uh, of the bride, would come to the parents' house and a procession then would set out from the bride's home to the couple's new home and the dark roadway would be lit with oil lamps by wedding guests. There was a festival, a party. There was singing and music accompanying the newly married couple on their way. And I can almost imagine that Jesus and his disciples are along the way and they're holding up the oil lamps and they're wishing the couple well. And by the way, Hospitality was extremely important in that culture and society. The hosts not only took great care to provide whatever the guests needed, but they were legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. And so having enough wine became an absolute imperative. By the way, I did a wedding yesterday. And I noticed something. That Jesus and his disciples are more than happy to come to any wedding that they're invited to. You know, I remember talking to the couple yesterday and I said, on this day, you'll never be this young ever again. You'll never be this thin ever again. The Bible says that a man will leave his mother and father and 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 cleave to the woman and the two shall become one. You're going to spend the rest of your life trying to determine which one. Of course, that's not the meaning of the text. The reality is that in Christ, we come together in unity. 
The presence of Jesus, by the way, at the wedding indicates his approval. Jesus honors and elevates marriage. And you'll note something else. The text says the mother of Jesus was there. It doesn't mention her by name. We don't know why. Joseph is not mentioned. Some of you might be wondering, where did he go? Well, again, most Bible scholars believe that Joseph has died and that Jesus has had the responsibility to care for his family. By the way, ancient church traditions place this wedding at Cana to be the wedding of Mary's sister, Salome's oldest son, or excuse me, at least one of the sons. We know from other biblical texts that those sons are named James and the author of this book, John. Do we know for sure? No. But look what it says in verse 3, the crisis and a mother's observation. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Have you noticed that mothers see things that normal mortals overlook? If you are a mother, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're talking to your husband. You're talking to the children. And you say to them, how can you not see that? How can you miss that? How can you not see what's going on? And so apparently, of course, the mother of Jesus, Jesus notices. And we don't know exactly Mary's position at this wedding. Some have suggested that she's a hostess. Some have suggested that she seems to have a deep concern and a commitment. As a matter of fact, later on in the text, when Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. There seems to be some indication that she had the authority to do such a thing. When I was preparing this study and I saw that expression, they have no wine, I couldn't help but thinking what wine in the Bible has come to symbolize and mean over and over again. Wine in the Bible often speaks of joy. And because it speaks of joy, I asked myself this question, what is the real problem here? Is the real problem they have no wine? Mary was no stranger to misunderstanding and ridicule and embarrassment. Jesus has just started his public ministry. If she was 13 or 14 or 15 years old when the Holy Spirit came upon her and she was found by the Holy Spirit with child and her parents knew and the village of Nazareth knew and her husband knew. I wonder if she got married on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. She was certainly no stranger to embarrassment. And there's nothing like embarrassment and humiliation to spoil your wedding day. Aren't you glad they've taken out of the modern ceremony? If anyone objects to this man and this woman, let them speak now or forever hold your peace. You know, I never, ever said that at a single wedding. I couldn't bear the response. Was Mary guarding the reputation of the family, the groom, the bride? Was Mary seeking a restoration of her own ruined reputation years earlier? And by the way, 
Nazareth was a small village, not far from Cana. As a matter of fact, when we travel to Israel, we will go through the village of Cana on the way down to Capernaum. As a matter of fact, according to one early church father, Jerome, the city could be seen from Nazareth. We know very little about the village other than Cana was the home of Nathaniel. It's also the place where two miracles are recorded in the Bible. This one, the turning of water into wine and a later miracle that's going to be recorded in John chapter Chapter four, verses 46 through 54, when Jesus raises the nobleman's son from the dead. And look at Jesus's words in verse four. Jesus said to her, woman. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. By the way, in our culture, the reading appears disrespectful, maybe even rude. If you grew up in the same kind of home I grew up in, if you ever dared call your mother woman, then your father would take a stick and hit your head like a pinata and see what kind of little sweet candies come out of that empty head. There's certain things you don't do to your mother. By the way, the expression in the original language is gyne. It is the word for woman in that culture. It more properly should probably be translated lady. As a matter of fact, it is a term of respect, not necessarily of, of warmth or affection. Jesus will use this exact title later. Do you remember when he's hanging on the cross? Do you remember when the author of this book and his mother are at the foot of the cross and Jesus's words from the cross? Woman, behold your son. It's the same word. The hour that Jesus refers to is the hour of darkness. When he says, my hour has not yet come, he's speaking of the hour of the cross. In John 17, 1, Jesus prays, remember, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The hour is the hour of sacrifice. The hour is the hour of proof. The hour is the hour when his messianic mission is going to come to a completion. This is... The hour in which his deity is declared and the revelation of the plan of God and the glory of God are manifest. In James chapter four, verse eight, it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is the hour. Jesus knew that his mother and the host had a deep need 
They, they had a need to avoid the awkward and the embarrassing social circumstances. But Jesus knew that he had come to meet an even deeper need, the need for spiritual purification and inner cleansing. That would come when the hour was complete and the hour of his suffering and the hour of his death and the hour of his sacrifice. So I want you to reread in verse four, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Again, you might read that expression and you might come to the conclusion, is this Jesus saying, get out of here. I'm not going to perform a miracle just to save you from an embarrassing and a humiliating circumstance. But that's not what the text says. And it certainly isn't what it means. I want to help you with that expression. Literally, in the original language... It's an idiomatic expression from the Aramaic and the Hebrew that has been translated into the Greek text, which we have in front of us. Literally, the text reads, what is that to you and what is that to me? It's really more of a way of saying, and let me try and and translate this in a way that captures the meaning of the text. I suspect what Jesus is really saying You can handle this your way, but I want you to let me handle this my way. Because something really important is taking place in the text. As Mary brings the problem to Jesus. By the way, is that always an appropriate thing to do? When you have a problem, even it's embarrassing, it's humiliating, it's it's troubling, it's disturbing, it's undermining you. Does it make good sense to bring your problems to Jesus? I think it makes perfect sense. We don't fault Mary for doing that. She brings her problem to Jesus, but then Jesus says something that I want you to understand. He is in effect saying, I want you to let me handle this my way. Jesus will show his power and he'll certainly spare this family embarrassment and shame and humiliation. He's going to save a humble Galilean family and he's going to preserve their dignity. But question. Does Jesus have a responsibility to do that? Does Jesus have a responsibility to to preserve you when you find yourself in a humiliating, shameful, disgusting circumstance? Jesus has no obligation to deliver them from the simple indignities and embarrassments of life. But I want to point something out to you. He will. And he does. We as Christians should exercise kindness and understanding. Jesus does that, which is amazing and profound. Remember in the New Testament, Paul writing about this, he says to Christians that you should be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And Jesus will do exactly that. And look at verse five, the sets of orders. There's two sets of orders. One comes from mom. The other order comes from the Messiah. Look at verse five. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's the proper perspective. 
When you do bring something to Jesus and you allow Jesus to handle it Jesus's way, it always makes sense to listen to what he says and do what he says. It makes perfect sense. Mary had the good sense to trust Jesus, to trust that Jesus would resolve the problem, even if she wasn't exactly sure how he was going to resolve this problem. By the way, there's no hint that Jesus is willing to cave into inappropriate demands simply because because they're made by his mother. I grew up in a religious tradition that suggested that, you know, sometimes you do things so wicked and so wrong that it's probably you shouldn't even go to Jesus with it. Just go to his mom. See if you can sneak the request by her. By the way, the New Testament paints a picture of Mary as a woman who loves her child. But as a woman who respects her savior, there's not even a hint in the Bible that we should pray to Mary or ask Mary for favors to ask Jesus. Does the Bible indicate that Jesus took orders from his mom or was influenced by his mom? The real answer is no. Yes, Jesus provides for his mother even on the cross. In another New Testament place, in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus is told that his mother wants to see him and that his brothers want to see him. And Jesus replies, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who hear and heed the word of God, they are my mother. They are my brothers. Later in Acts chapter 1, we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, praying with the apostles and the disciples in the upper room, Mary isn't leading the meeting and no one is praying to Mary. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I also want to point something else out to you that you might want to know. Do you see the words in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Do you realize that these are the last recorded words of Mary in the New Testament? The last words that the Holy Spirit has coming from the mouth of Mary is whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. I don't think that that's an accident. And look at verse six. Now there were there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. These water pots of stone were massive containers that were used to conduct ritual purification under the Jewish law. You see, it was used for ritual purification, but it was also used for cleansing. When a Jew would go to an outdoor event or a public meeting and there was food and festivity taking place, even between the entrees, they would dip their fingers in the water so that they would remain ritually pure rather than unpure. So this water was used for thirst and it was used for ritual purification. I think that this is important. Six is the number of human beings. Seven is the number of perfection. 
Jesus is going to use these stone containers to show that he has the power to purify, to cleanse and to satisfy human beings. Because you see, each one of those water pots could were, were prescribed for and used for a temporary cleansing. A temporary making clean. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to take an element that is used to bring about a ritual and temporal purity. And he's going to transform it into wine. It's a symbol of joy, certainly in the Bible. But sometimes wine is also another symbol of another element. You know what that element is? It's the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. Jesus is going to transform the temporal into the eternal. He's going to transform something that was an initial cleansing into a permanent cleansing. Jesus has the power to create and produce whatever is necessary to cleanse and to satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. He has the ability to satisfy you and to cleanse you. Now we see the orders from the Messiah. Look at verse 7. It says, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Notice that in verse 7. All the way up to the brim. Why? The water goes all the way to the top. There's no room to add a little wine. Can you imagine if they go, okay, just fill it up to the best of your ability. And all of a sudden the servants start sneaking in wine concentrate. Well, look, we, I think we have some, we have some Welch's concentrate out in the fridge. Dude, we can put this in and yeah, well, it's not exactly wine. Or can you imagine the servants going, okay, we each have two packets of Kool-Aid. And what we'll do is we'll rip off the packet of Kool-Aid and we'll we'll stick it in the water pots and we'll fool everybody. But guess what? This isn't an illusion. This isn't a magic trick. This isn't a messianic mind freak. This is going to be a real miracle. And the servants obey Jesus. That becomes really a key. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't ask them to do something extraordinary. He asks them to do that which is normal, believable and well within their power to do. Do you realize that Jesus will never, I repeat, Jesus will never, I'll repeat a third time. Jesus will never ask you to do something. That you can't do. Jesus will always ask you to do that which is in your capacity to do. Remember, the water pots are 20 to 30 gallons each. That's about the size of an SUV gas tank. But can you imagine as they're taking the water from the well and they're putting it in the water pots? They have no idea what Jesus is going to do. This becomes important for you because sometimes in your life, Jesus will ask you to do something and you have no idea what he's going to do. But the plan that he has is a miracle. 
Jesus instructs them. Preparation is made. And when Jesus is obeyed, everyone will be given the opportunity to see his creative power, his miraculous power, the power of Jesus to make something ordinary into something extraordinary. And here we find a principle that we shouldn't neglect. Obey Jesus. We are to do what he asks us to do. Jesus doesn't ask us to perform miracles. He'll do it. I remember one time I was in South uh, in uh, Mexico with my wife and we were handing out food and clothes and we were providing Bible studies and people were coming for for prayer and for to, 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 to for healing and prayer. And I'll never forget this one woman brought a baby and the baby was bloated and distended and the baby was bright red, which is the wrong color if you're a Mexican. You're supposed to be bien moreno. That sort of cafecito brown is the color you're looking for. But this baby was hurt and this baby was sick. And I remember praying for this baby and saying, Lord, I have no idea what to pray. I have no idea what to say. And the Lord said, pray for the baby. Pray for the baby to be healed. And I prayed. That the baby would be healed. And it was as if you had stuck a needle in a balloon and the baby began literally, the distinction became to go away. And this red, ruby red baby turned a nice bien cafecito brown. God healed the baby. You see, human beings can't do miracles. We can't undermine the plan of God or the purposes of God. But once in a while, once in a great while, perhaps, God will use you to be an instrument of his love and blessing and miraculous power. In John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. This servant's obedience, look what it does in verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, this is interesting. As you are serving Jesus and obeying Jesus, not necessarily knowing what Jesus is going to do at any given moment, when they draw out the water and they bring it to the master of the feast, they don't argue with Jesus. They don't question Jesus. They simply ask and respond to what Jesus is doing. What do you do? What are you doing, Lord? Lord. If this doesn't go exactly right, I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to leave people with the wrong impression. But you know what? Jesus told them to take the water to the master of the feast and they took it. I'm going to suggest something to you. Even at this point, the servants have no idea. What is about to take place? But it does take place. And it takes place in the context of a faithful submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Have you ever needed a miracle? 
a miracle in your marriage? Does your marriage seem washed up or watered down? I can't help but thinking of a movie that I saw many years ago with James Mason. And James Mason is on is with this woman. He goes, I think you should sit down, my dear, and have a bit more of the bubbly. That was his way of saying, I think you need an interjection of joy. You need something. You need some joy in your life. Marriage can be like water, clear and transparent and workable. But I think it needs to be like wine. Colorful, fragrant, wonderful, intoxicating. Many years ago, the San Francisco Chronicle ran a story about the oldest living American Olympian. His name was Abel Kibiak. He he had won the silver medal in the 1500 meter race in 1912. And uh, his wife had died and he was ready to settle down again and get married at the age of 99. He told the San Francisco Chronicle, she doesn't have to have teeth. Just a driver's license. I think sometimes we're like Abel Kibiak. We have this minimum requirement. No teeth in a driver's license. She's a candidate. You see, I suspect the filling of the water pots also meant to represent the completion of Judaism and its ceremonial cleansings. The unlimited supply of water from the well turned into wine, symbolizing for us the beginnings of Christianity with its endless, joyful supply of God's grace. The sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, instead of temporary cleansing, we have permanent cleansing. Look at verses nine and ten when the master of the feast tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water new and the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk then the inferior you kept the good wine until now by the way it was an ancient jewish custom that when a man would give birth to a daughter he would fill a container with wine and he would bury that container For the day of his daughter's wedding. And when the day came, he he would dig it up and he would give it to the guests. That was good wine. Unbelievers know this story. Even unbelievers know the story of this miracle. When the master of the feast had tasted the water and was made wine, didn't know it. And even unbelievers will go, yes. Jesus turned water into wine, did, yes. Jesus loves wine. I love wine. I'm just following Jesus in my love of wine. I take my cue from Jesus. You know, what's interesting to me is people who talk like that don't really take their cue from Jesus. Because remember in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus comes to the end of his life, He says after the Passover that he refuses to drink the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God.
don't come. Or are you, are you really taking your cue from Jesus? Are you too following Jesus, refusing to take wine until the kingdom of God come? Hey, I don't want to lay that trip on you. I do want to remind you just of a couple of things. You can't prohibit what the Bible allows. And you shouldn't allow what the Bible prohibits. Wine becomes a symbol, like I said, of joy. The guests have no idea where the wine has come from. It's known only to the servants. And again, this isn't like a wine auction. When the wine comes out, this wine that has been miraculously changed from water into wine, the guests don't go, such fragrance, such bouquet, such delicacy. I'm thinking Babylon 486 B.C. They have no idea what has happened. It's sort of like the real weddings that we go to even now. Some people just go to weddings. They show up and they watch the bride and the groom exchange vows. They have no idea that a miracle is taking place. That a supernatural and a spiritual event is taking place. We come to church. And sometimes we have no idea that a miracle is taking place And the person who's sitting right next to you, their heart is changing. Their mind is changing. Their life is being transformed. By the way, the master of the feast is a complicated Greek word. It's archi, tri, klinos. Archi means first, tri means three, klinos means couch. It was a big word that that they would use to describe the person who was the superintendent of the banquet, the person in charge of arranging the tables and the food. The person in charge of arranging the tables and the food understand that something An event of joy has taken place, but he has no idea. But the servants do and the disciples do. Jesus gives evidence that he is the Messiah. Look at verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, John writes this beginning of signs. There will be six more. There are three words, by the way, that are used in the New Testament for what we might call miracles or evidence of the supernatural. Peter uses all three words on the day of Pentecost when he tells the Jews about the ministry of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when he says, Jesus is this man approved of God among you by miracles. It's dunamis, wonders, teros, signs, simeon. It's the same word. Dunamis means power or mighty works. And by the way, that word is never used in John's gospel. At all. Teros means wonder and is used by John only once in John chapter 4, verse 48. The word Simeon means sign. It's used in John 17 times. But the King James Version wrongly translates it miracle 13 of those times. All three words, by the way, are, is also used to describe the satanic power. Of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine. So what does the sign mean? 
Leon Morris writes, this particular miracle signifies that there's a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the riches and the fullness of eternal life in Christ. The water of the law becomes the wine of the gospel. Jesus takes that which is temporal and he makes it eternal. That which cleanses for a moment and he gives us that which cleanses forever. And look what it says, and his disciples believed in him. It was a miracle. You know, there are skeptics who claim that a miracle can't happen. You probably said this sometime in your life or maybe someone you love has said it to you. You're kidding yourself. Miracles don't happen. But guess what? God can change the laws that seem unchangeable. What kind of God would make a world he couldn't manage? Can you imagine Detroit building a car that you couldn't steer? Some of you are going, yeah. But God isn't going to do that. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he's the Christ? Do you believe that he's the Messiah? Do you believe that he has the power to purify you and cleanse you and transform you? Again, we're going to repeat this verse often, John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The miracle Jesus performed that day wasn't simply to spare his mother and the wedding party embarrassment or shame or ridicule. Jesus is going to restore sight to the blind, but not to every blind man. Jesus is going to cleanse the lepers, but not every leper. Jesus is going to raise some from the dead, but not all from the dead. In John's gospel, the miracles of Jesus aren't to impress you with his ability, but rather to present for you the credentials that he is the son of God and the hope and the expectation that one day all humiliation and suffering will disappear. And death will disappear. And life will be for those who know him. And love him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you and we praise you for your grace and for your mercy. And Heavenly Father, we. We thank you that water normally used for ceremonial cleansing. Turns to wine. And that which was only formally. Temporarily cleansed can now become permanently cleansed, permanently forgiven. Lord, we, we know that the master of the banquet room remarked that the bridegroom had saved the best to last. And Lord, that's exactly what you've done. You've saved the best for last. The new covenant rather than the old covenant. Oh, cleansing. Forgiveness, grace, 
mercy. Change. The miracle of change. And Lord, I pray for that person who needs a permanent cleansing. Superior to the old covenant. Lord, I pray for that person who doesn't want their sin temporarily set aside. They want a permanent solution to the humiliation and the suffering. Cleansing forever. Lord, I pray that they would invite Jesus into their life. Confess their sin and appropriate Him as Messiah and believe in Him completely. Receive Him now. In Jesus' name.